And uh, we're going to begin reading in, in Philippians chapter number 4. And we'll begin reading in verse number 10, and we'll read down through verse number 13. The Bible says in Philippians 4 and verse number 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Of course, Paul is addressing the church at Philippi and their giving to be a help to him while he was in a Roman prison. And so, of course, we've been talking about this concept of financing the Lord's work here in the book, book of Philippians chapter number four. And so that was the people's responsibility was to give so that the work of God, the work of the gospel could go forward. But look in verse number 11. Now Paul turns his attention to himself and he talks about his response to the giving of God's people and God's care of him. He says in verse number 11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Father, we pray, Lord, that you'd bless the reading of your word and as we Take a deeper dive into these few verses that we have just read. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us what you'd have us to know. Lord, we do understand that the work of the gospel is a spiritual work, but it requires, uh, Lord, it requires sacrifice on the part of, of God's people to give and sacrifice on the part of God's servant to, uh, to live off of what is, what is given. Lord, you teach us so many uh, Lord, powerful lessons from these few verses and help us, Lord, to help each of us, uh, Lord, to do our part and to have an attitude and a spirit that is honoring and pleasing in thy sight. Lord, meet with us here in this place today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated as we preach through this particular text. And we've been in the book of Philippians really since the beginning of this year. And we've come now to this final uh, final chapter, we, we discover that Paul deals with, again, his physical condition and the fact that he is really dependent upon the giving of God's people. We do know that Paul had the ability to care for his own needs as a uh, as a, uh, a tent maker, a bivocational type of a minister, but as he writes the book of Philippians, we understand it to be one of the prison epistles. Therefore, uh, the apostle Paul is not in a position where he's able to fashion a tent and to be able to sell it so that he can put food on his own table and to provide a place for him to stay and, and, and put some clothes upon his back. And so he is completely and totally dependent upon uh, the gifts of, of other people. And of course, the church at Philippi had responded in an unusual way, and he commends them for that in verse number 10. But then he talks about his own physical condition and his response, really, to the gifts that were, that were given. And as we pointed out the last time we were together, we, we, we brought out to you this idea from verse number 11. He says, he says this very clearly. He says, I want you to know that God has always provided for me. God has always met my needs. As he writes this, he says, not that I speak in respect of want. Essentially what he's saying there, he's saying this. He says, I want you to know something. Though I am, though I'm sitting in this prison and though I do not have the ability uh, to make tents and to be able to provide for my own needs, I want you to know something. I am not writing you from a place of being completely and totally destitute. 
I do not, I do not write this in respect of want. I'm not writing this seeking a handout or, 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 or begging for you to do more than you've already done. I want you to know that God has been faithful to me. And I just want to go on record, and I just want to say that the same God that was faithful to the Apostle Paul and provided for the Apostle Paul is the exact same God that I still serve today, that you still serve today. And I just want to also say this, that our God is faithful to us. God always provides. I can think of times in my life in which uh, I've had to wonder, how's God going to provide for this need, and how is God going to provide for that need? And I, and I must tell you that God always provides, but he rarely does it the way that I think he's going to. You know, a lot of times we, uh, we want God just to fix the problem. A lot of times God allows the problem to remain, doesn't he? We think, why, why don't you remove this from me? Why don't, you, uh, why don't you give me deliverance from this particular situation? But here's what I found. I found that while God sometimes allows the problem to remain, God always provides a path through the problem that I'm dealing with. God is so very good. God always provides. But then he said this. He says, not only does God always provide, but he said this. He says, living by faith requires contentment. We discover that in verse number 11, where he says, not that I speak in respect of one. He says, I don't, I want you to think that I'm, I'm coming to a place, from a place of being completely and totally destitute. No, no, that's not the case. He said, God always provides. But then he says this, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now I got to tell you, I'm, I've spent time in some difficult classrooms in my day and age. I'm thinking of these young men who stood up here a moment ago. One thing I know about Pensacola Christian College is it's known, uh, it's known for its academic integrity. So I guarantee you these young men could talk about difficult classes that they have sat through. And all of us can think of, uh, of teachers that when we think of them, you know, like a, a dark cloud comes over us because of just how determined they were to make sure that we got the material that they were presenting. But I want you to know something. I don't know of a more difficult class in all of the world than the class in which we learn contentment. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And we said, we said last week, or several weeks ago when we were last together, that learning takes time. Learning takes time. You think about what it required for you to achieve maybe a high school diploma. You understand, that was 13 years. Maybe some of you are sitting here saying, I did better than that. I was 14 or 15 years in securing my high school diploma. Some of you, once you were finished with high school, you moved on to another level and you began to pursue a bachelor degree and that's another four years. And some of you have moved on and you've secured a master's degree and that's typically another two years. And some of you maybe are even going further than that to secure some type of doctorate or PhD. And I'm just simply saying, you understand the, the concept here. Learning takes time. But not only does learning take time, it requires an instructor. Learning requires an instructor. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and chapter number 12, he, he talks about the, uh, the instructors that he had. And you understand that the instructor that's teaching us contentment oftentimes is trials. In chapter number 11, the Apostle Paul listed the trials that he had endured. And then in chapter number 12, he, he listed the things that he had learned as a result of these trials. And he had learned, number one, that he could not change his circumstances. And neither can you and neither can I. We cannot change our circumstances. 
the things that are happening around us, the people that God has allowed access and influence into our lives, more often than not, more likely than not, we cannot change those things. But here's what he had come to discover. He had come to discover this, that the Lord, though he could not change his circumstances, the Lord was using his circumstances to strengthen him. In other words, the very things that the Apostle Paul was praying, he had gone to God, he said, three separate times I went to the Lord trying to remove or trying to change this in my life. And three separate times God refused to remove it. And finally God said to him, God said, I want you to know something. The thing that is causing you the most heartache and the most difficulty is the very thing that I am going to use to make you the most like me. The Lord God said to Paul, he said, listen, your your weakness allows for my strength to be made perfect. The apostle Paul walked away from that conversation with God, and he said this, he says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's how you know he learned contentment. When he said, listen, I'm no longer asking God to remove me from the trial. No, no, rather I'm asking God, Lord, if it it allows for your strength to be made perfect in my weakness, Lord, I'm going to glory in my infirmities. I'm going to glory in my trials because, because through these things, your strength is made perfect in me. And so we talked about all of those things a few weeks ago. And I want to continue this thought or this idea. If you're going to, if you're going to learn, if you're going to be content, if you're going to discover this, you must not only understand that this is learned, but secondly, as he moves through this particular text, I want you to understand, if you're going to be a content person, you must come to the conclusion that Paul came to in verse number 12, and that is this, life is full of seasons. Life is full of season. I just want to park here for just a few minutes this morning. And I want to talk about the seasons of life because the Apostle Paul identifies them in our text. First of all, he talks about the fact that there are seasons of want. There are seasons of want. Paul writes, he says, I know both how to be abased. A little bit later, he says, I know how to be hungry. A little bit later, he says, I know how to suffer need. You and I must understand this, and and we must come to to terms with this, and and we must really come to, to, not just come to terms, but come to embrace the fact that life is full of seasons, and one of the seasons that you and I must experience and endure in life is the season of want. The word abased is translated from the Greek word uh, tapano, and it means to depress, to humiliate, to bring low, or to humble. Paul knew what it was like to go through times when he didn't have a whole lot. His ministry biography that's given to us in 2 Corinthians 11 that's written by his own hand reveals that the seasons of want were were, were probably, for, for the Apostle Paul in his ministry life, the seasons of want were more common and they lasted seemingly longer than the seasons of abundance. For sure, they seem to have been much more memorable for the Apostle Paul, don't they? In other words, as you read 2 Corinthians 11, you'll discover that the Apostle Paul knew exactly how many times he had been beaten. Exactly. I mean, he remembered it. It was this many times that I was beaten this way, and it was that many times I was beaten that way, and these are the people that that beat me, and here's how they did it. 
I mean, he knew exactly. I mean, it, it, it just rolled off of his, off of his tongue from his, from his pen onto the paper. He knew how many times he had suffered shipwreck. He knew how many times, how many nights he had spent in the deep and how many days he had spent uh, waiting for, for someone to rescue him. I mean, the list of his sufferings, it flows from his pen seemingly quite easily. Doesn't it seem like seasons of want are much more memorable, much more common, and last much longer than seasons of abundance? Have you discovered that to be true in your lives? I've asked myself, why is it the case? And I'm sure, no doubt, it has something, it has something to do with our sin nature. And you understand that your sin nature is more than just that which, which, which causes you to sin. Understand this, that, that your sin nature is, is so pervasive that, that, it, that it even tends to, to control the way that you think. And did you know that because of your sin nature, you and I naturally, we tend to focus more on the negative than we do on the positive. I can, I can come home after a full day on Sunday in which I preached to hundreds of people and people were helped and encouraged and people were saved and people were baptized and people gave and people served and I can come home at night and I can, I can sit in my home and I can drive myself crazy wondering, well, where were these people? And I'm thinking to myself, well, hold on a minute. There were hundreds of people that were there. Why are you so bothered by the two people that weren't? Because I'm a sinner by nature. And my sin nature tends to focus more on the negative than the positive. And I can come home and I can think about the fact that, man, I wish I wouldn't have said this. Or I wish I would have spent a little bit more time on that. Or I wish I would have had an opportunity to talk to that person. Rather than thanking God for the opportunity that I got to say what I did get to say. And that I got to minister to the people that I did get to minister to. And you're the same way as I am. Then in, in your sin nature, you tend to focus more on the negative than you do on the positive. So that's only natural. I also think, I also think that the seasons of want are more memorable. They last longer. They're more common. And I think that's true also because in this world, there just is much more suffering and difficulty than there is good and there is blessing. Can we just, can we just be real frank and be real honest about that? That in the world that we live in, there's a lot of suffering, isn't there? And there's a lot of difficulty. And, and, and you ought to just understand that eventually that's going to touch your life as well. Now, that's not to say that there isn't good and blessing down here. There certainly is. I mean, Jeremiah wrote of the Lord's mercies that they were new every morning, according to Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. And yet Jeremiah was still known as the weeping prophet. So here's a man who says, man, I want you to know, every day I wake up, the mercies and the blessings and the graces of God, they're new and they're fresh every morning. And yet every night, Jeremiah still went to bed with a tear on his pillow because of the circumstances that were around him and the trials that he had to endure. This world has been under the curse of sin now for thousands of years. And can I say that there is no escaping this curse down here. It just isn't. It's everywhere. It's all around us. Can I say this? It's getting worse and worse with each passing day. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 22 and 23, he says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And you say, well, yeah, I, I understand that, Paul. I mean, the, the world is waiting for redemption, but I'm a believer. I've been redeemed already. I shouldn't have to groan, but look what he says in the very next verse, verse number 23. And not only they, 
but ourselves also. Now, Paul's writing this, isn't he? Paul's been redeemed, hasn't he? And yet Paul's saying, listen, I want you to know something. I'm groaning too. I'm travailing too. I'm dealing with seasons of want and seasons of difficulty as well. He says, not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We might liken the season of want to winter. We, um, as Northeast Ohioans, we've grown pretty familiar with how to deal with winter, haven't we? I think to myself, we're like professionals at it. We're really good at this thing, you know. In winter, we, we, we pull out our gloves and our coats and our scarves and our hats, don't we? I mean, we've got like a dedicated area in our basement for our winter things. And I don't know about you, but I haven't put those things away yet. <laughs> this weekend, I was a little chilly. I saw, I saw people walk around with, 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 with the hats, with hats on, you know. And so we, 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 we pull those things out. Why? Because we know winter is coming. What else do we do? We, um, we put ice scrapers in our cars. And some of you are too cheap for that, and so you just use that man car we're going to give you today, and that'll, that'll be a good ice scraper for your windshield. It'll last, I promise you. It's, it's, it's got, uh, it's got more, than, more than one purpose. What else do we do? We, we buy rock salt for our driveways and for our sidewalks. We spread those things, and, and uh, if, you're anything like, if you're anything like me, we start to hear on the news that first snow is coming, and so we'll go outside, and we'll prep the snowblower. Some of you are like, I don't have a snowblower, but I have a 16-year-old son, and he'll do just fine, right? <laughs> you make sure the shovel is ready, and he's got access to it, and away he goes. But I'm just simply saying, listen, we, we, understand, we understand the season of winter, and we prepare ourselves for it, don't we? Some people... Some people even go so far as to flee south during winter. I hate people like that. You know, they're down there enjoying life, and they get the best of both worlds because there's nothing better. There's nothing better than northeast Ohio during the summertime. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. There's nothing worse than northeast Ohio. And, and I, just, I just discovered the people in the south, it just flip-flops for them. You know, there's nothing better than you know, south Florida during the wintertime. There's nothing worse than south Florida during the summertime. It just flip-flops. You're going to be miserable no matter where you live. You might as well just pick a place and settle in because there's going to be a season that you're not going to be able to leave your house, all right? That's, that's just the way that it works. But we prepare, don't we? We prepare for the season of winter, the season of want. I'm thinking to myself, can we do the same? I'm talking about in a literal sense. We prepare for winter coming. Uh, we, we get our houses ready and we get our cars ready and, and we get ourselves ready and we pull out the winter clothes, the long sleeve shirts and the sweaters and the sweatpants and the, you know, and all those sorts of things and, and, and the boots and, and can we not do the same in a, in a spiritual sense and in a, in, in an emotional sense for the seasons of want that we know, listen, that we know are going to come? You may not have a weatherman who, who appears in your, in your ear and tells you, I want you to know, you're getting ready to enter a season of want. You better get ready, but you know, listen, you know as well as I do that those seasons are coming in your life. So can we do the same? What should you do? What should I do in the season of want that God allows us to go through? I'd say, you can jot these things down. They're not in your notes, but I would just say, number one, you should expect it. You should expect it. I think one of the reasons we struggle so much to stay, to stay content during seasons of want is because we think we deserve better. 
And so when I'm, when I'm dealing with a trial, one of the reasons I'm not content is because my first impulse, my, my natural fresh, flesh, fleshly response is to look to, to, to heaven and say, God, I don't deserve this. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to serve you. I've tried to love you. I've tried to worship you and to, and to be sacrificial towards you and to your work. And I try to be a good person. I go to work every day. And I'm, I'm still married to my spouse. And I'm trying to raise my kids. God, I don't deserve this. I just want you to know something. If you and I got what we deserved, do we even need to go there this morning? But, but normally our first response is that I don't deserve this. And if that's your first response, if that's your only response, you're never going to be content during seasons of want because you think you deserve better. And I think we just need to come to the realization that, listen, I have to expect it. And imagine, imagine, imagine if you walked around during the season of winter in Northeast Ohio and you said, I don't deserve this. And somebody just look at you and say, well, then move somewhere else, you idiot. I mean, honestly, you live in Cleveland, Ohio. Did you really think you were going to go through a whole winter and not see any ice or snow? Did you really think you're going to go through the winter and see the sunshine? It doesn't happen. And yet, and yet a lot of times that's how we act in a spiritual sense, in, in, in an emotional sense, when we enter into a season of want. I just want to look at people and just say, listen, you live down here. You're in a broken world and you have a broken body did you really think did you really think you were going to live 85 years and not experience some seasons of winter did you really think that you were going to live your whole life and not experience some seasons of want are you kidding me so we need to expect it i'd say number two we ought to prepare for it you ought to prepare for it just as we prepare for winter when it's on the horizon, we do certain things to our houses and our homes and our yards and our buildings and our cars and our bodies even. We're preparing for the coming winter. We know the temperature is going to be cold. The snow is going to fall. And we're going to have much more time inside than outside. What could you do to prepare for the season of want? Because you know it's coming. And it may be right now that you're in a season of abundance. But you know the season of want is coming. What can you do to prepare yourself? I'm thinking to myself... Be wise, maybe, to have some financial savings set aside. I understand not every trial is a financial trial, but a lot of them are. So maybe during the seasons of abundance, we can maybe put a little bit more aside, understanding and acknowledging that the season of want is coming, and we need to be prepared for that. We need to be ready for that. Maybe we could trim some of the excess in our lives, do away with some things that we don't really need all that much so that we can be prepared for the season of want. I would say that, again, preparation for the season of want is much more than just physical. It could be spiritual as well. I suppose that before someone enters the season of want, they probably should want to be as spiritually fit as possible. What are some steps that you could take in your spiritual life that you haven't taken yet? Some of you are sitting here saying, you know, I, I know I should be doing this. I know I should be doing that. What are the should be's that you should be doing or you ought to be doing? And, and, and maybe now while life is pretty good, you can start doing those things now so that they don't look at the very least like just some kind of an overreaction. I'm in a trial, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start serving God so that he knows I'm really serious about him. I, I think there, there are some, uh, some reasonable things that we could be doing. 
I, I, I would say that you know, during the season, seasons of, uh, of abundance, we ought to be serving the Lord and, and, and preparing ourselves for the season one. And then I would say number, number three, what can you do to prepare or to be ready uh, to endure the season of one? Number, number three, I'd say this, stay faithful through it. Stay faithful through it. Oh, so many people fall away, don't they? During the season of want. It's understandable. They get frustrated. They get down. They get discouraged. They get depressed because of their circumstances. And one of the first things they do is one of the worst things that they could possibly do. And as many times they walk away from the Lord. I'm sure, I'm sure that during seasons of want, rather than walk away from the Lord, Paul, don't you suppose he, he read his Bible more? He studied his Bible more, he meditated upon it more. He prayed more, he served more. Too many times, believers today, myself included, during seasons of want, we study less. We pray less, we serve less. There's seasons of life, and you need to understand that. You understand that the season of want is, is probably gonna be, be predominant. Isn't it interesting that when we talk about living in this area, uh, we, we, we're, we're enjoying a, we enjoy a beautiful summer here, but isn't it interesting that, that when, when people think about us, all they think about is the winter? And doesn't it seem like the winter is so much longer? It's not. It's, it feels like it is, but it's really not. We get just as many summer months as we get winter months. Some of you are looking at me like, you shouldn't be lying in the pulpit. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm being serious, right? But, 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 because, but because it feels so difficult and depressing and so challenging, it just seems to last longer. Paul says, I, I know how to be a base. I know how to be hungry. I know how to suffer need. But notice the very next, the very next phrase. He, he talks about the seasons of abundance. And you must know, listen, that there are seasons of abundance. And just as there are seasons of great want and difficulty, maybe we could refer to that as winter there, are also seasons of great abundance and blessing. And just as the curse of sin brings great difficulty into our lives, the presence of Christ, all oh, the presence of Christ, balances some of these things by bringing us great blessing. Did you know that even the lost experience times of abundance and blessing? The Bible says in Job 25, 3, upon whom doth not his light arise? I mean, the, the, the light that shines, it shines on all of us, on the evil and on the good. The Bible says in Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. In Matthew 5 and verse number 45, that ye may, Jesus says, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Oh, there are seasons of want, no doubt about it, but there are also seasons of abundance. I don't know what season you're in today, but I, I do know this. I do know that there are different seasons in life, and you should understand that. What should we do? What should our approach be to the season of abundance? Number one, I'd say thank God for it. Thank God for it. You may be in a season of abundance right now. Thank the Lord. Lord, thank you for your goodness to me. Thank you that right now I'm not under, I'm not under any uh, overarching financial strain. Lord, thank you that right now, as far as I know, I'm in good health. Lord, thank you right now that my marriage is healthy and that it's good. Lord, thank you right now that my church is, is in a good place and that we're experiencing the moving of God. Lord, Lord thank you right now that my car is running and, and, and that everything seems to, be, seems to be okay right now. I know how that is. We're always waiting for that other shoe to drop. But Lord, thank you in this moment. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness to me. One of the worst things we could do is to take credit for the bountiful blessings and mercies that only come to us from the hand of God. 
The Bible tells us in James 1.17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So you've got a healthy marriage, that's a good gift. That's a perfect gift. That's from God. You've got a car that runs, <laughs> that's a good gift. That's from God. You've got a house that doesn't have some, something getting ready to explode in it, that is a good gift and a perfect gift from, from God above. Your job is good, God, that's from you. Thank you, Lord. Thank God for it. Number two, don't assume. Don't assume this season will always last. Sort of touched on this. I'm only going to say much about it. Thank God for where you are, but acknowledge and remember difficult days are still coming. No matter where I may be, I understand and I acknowledge that probably just around the bend, not far away, the calendar is going to turn, and so are the seasons. They're going to come and they're going to go. And I understand and I acknowledge that a difficult season is coming. Number three, be a wise steward with the season of abundance. Instead of spending or wasting everything that comes your way during the season, prepare for the winter days that you know are on the horizon. You know the Bible says of the ant? I'm talking about the tiny little insignificant ant in Proverbs 6, 7, and 8. The Bible says about that ant, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. You know what the ant knows that sometimes we as human beings don't know? The ant knows winter is coming. And the ant spends all of summer not playing around, having a good time. No, the ant spends all of summer preparing for winter. Don't you suppose we ought to do a little bit of the same? We ought to be, be wise stewards with the season. Listen, make no mistake, the Christian life, all of life is full of seasons. There'll be times when you abound, and there'll be times in which you suffer need. Acknowledging this, listen, acknowledging this will keep us from frustration, but can also enable us to be content no matter what season we find ourselves in. The third conclusion that Paul came to living on the gifts that were given as, the, as a servant of God he said, God always provides. He says that if I'm going to live by faith, I must be content. But number three, he said this. He said, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Look in verse number 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You know what he's saying? Paul, Paul's concluding that so long as he has Christ, he can manage to deal with anything that life throws his way. Maybe you came into the building this morning, somewhat down on your life and on your prospects. It's easy to look around and to see others who are prospering and succeeding while feeling like your life will never be so blessed. But remember this, they may be in a season of abundance while you happen to be in a season of want, but it won't always be this way for either of you. Paul's statement here reminds us of a critical truth. With Christ, listen, with Christ, I am always, I am always on the winning side regardless of how it might look or how it might feel at this present moment. And isn't that the problem? So many of us, we live by our feelings. Don't you understand that as believers, as Christians, we're not called to be people of feelings. We're called to be people of faith. And if I'm a man of faith, I, I don't have to allow my, 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 my circumstances, my present circumstances to control the way that I feel. No, I'm living by faith. So, so no matter what my present circumstances may be, I have Christ and that alone is enough for me to be content. I'll share two things with you and I'll be done very quickly. I think we understand, first of all, that true poverty is to be without Christ. True poverty. Some of you are sitting here today and you're saying, man, by this world's standards, I'm, I'm, I'm in poverty. By the world's standards. But can I, tell you, can I tell you something? That if you have Christ, then you're good. 
No matter, how, no matter how big of a bank account you have, no matter how big of a house you have, no matter what kind of car you drive, no, no. You know what true poverty is? True poverty isn't not having enough money to, 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 to pay the light bill and to put food on the, on the table. True poverty is to be without Christ. Did, did you know that, uh, did you know that in, in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse number seven, Solomon wrote, there is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. And there is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Are you aware that some of the people that live in the, in the finest neighborhoods in Northeast Ohio, according to what Solomon wrote here, they have nothing. Why? Because they don't know the Lord. And there are some, there are some people, maybe some of you here this morning, that you live, in, you live in some of the poorest neighborhoods in Northeast Ohio, and yet you, you are rich beyond, beyond words. You have everything. Why? Because of your relationship with the Lord. What I'm saying, what Paul is saying is this, Christ is enough. Paul is saying, listen, I may not be at the Hyatt. I may be in the Roman prison, but you know what? I've got Christ, so I'm good. How do you suppose he finds contentment except for thinking this, thinking these thoughts? I might, I might live in, 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 the, in the nicest neighborhood or I might live in the poorest neighborhood, but if I've got Christ, that's enough. Why? Because true poverty is to be without Christ. You know, there's a wealth that exists behind what, which is, which is abject, abject spiritual poverty. In other words, there's a lot of people that have a lot of money, but they, they're spiritually poor, therefore they don't really have much. Mark 8, 35 and 36, Jesus said, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So true poverty is to be without Christ, but number two, true wealth is to be in Christ. True wealth is to be in Christ. The Bible says in John three thirty six, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And if you have that, if you have that, listen, you're the richest man, you're the richest woman, you're the richest teenager, you're the richest boy or girl in the entire world. Because you have something, listen, you have something that money cannot buy. You have everlasting life. Are you weary and frustrated with the season of life you're in? I hope these thoughts will encourage you. Seasons come and go. Enjoy the seasons of abundance. But don't ever plan to be there forever. Embrace the season of want knowing that God teaches us things here that he might not teach us anywhere else. And, and be encouraged by this thought. Those who have Christ are always on the winning side, regardless of their present circumstances.